This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. Today is Friday, August 21st, 2020. And we are now entering the Thunderdome era of the coronavirus era of professional wrestling. We've got a lot of smaller stories, I think, today that we're going to hit one right after the other. We'll see how it goes. AEW is bringing in fans. Stardom has canceled shows. NXT this week ran unopposed. And we've got some financial information about All Japan Pro Wrestling and Pro Wrestling Noah. We've got some news in the world of WrestleNomics itself. We'll get to that. But without further ado, let's get to the top story first. So today I'm announcing that our Amway Center will serve as the residency for WWE for the next two months. The residency is a first for both WWE and the Amway Center. During the residency, WWE will have live tapings on Mondays and Fridays. The first one starting Friday with Friday Night Smackdown. Uh, there will be no public events and no fans permitted in the arena. Additionally, during the residency, we're adding additional safety and cleaning procedures. They include wearing masks, daily temperature screening, hand sanitation, physical distancing, and COVID testing for WE talent and staff. We're extremely grateful to have WWE choose the Amway Center to help keep our Orlando venue staff working during the pandemic. That's Orlando Mayor Buddy Dyer making the announcement of that starting tonight, August 21st on Friday. WWE will begin broadcasting live, no longer out of the Performance Center in Orlando, Florida, but out of the Amway Center, the major sports arena in Orlando. As WWE introduces its Thunderdome presentation. More on that in a minute. Orlando News 13's John Alba asked Buddy Dyer, the mayor, if WWE's two-month lease will eventually allow them to have fans in the building. They're there for 60 days, two months, and right now the plan is to have no fans, but to have live taping on Monday and Monday and Friday, and then there's going to be some pay-per-view events on Sunday. So Ron Smackton will be at the Amway Center for the foreseeable future, at least through most of October. NXT, however, stays at Full Sail University in Winter Park, Florida, just outside of Orlando. According to comments from Executive Vice President Paul Levesque, it sounds like WWE has an agreement with Full Sail to have NXT there on an ongoing basis. According to News 13 in Orlando, the city of Orlando and the Amway Center will be making about $450,000 off of WWE's residency there. So WWE paying just under half a million dollars for two months at the Amway Center. So that's a pretty good deal for WWE. You can factor that into your WWE financial model. However, that's not the only added expense for WWE. The press release the company put out on Monday morning announces that WWE will team up with a company called The Famous Group as it introduces The Thunderdome. 
to another edition of Thunderdome! No, wait, that, that's the wrong clip. Wait a second. Um. Hidden deep in the mountains, three strange men work around the clock to complete the biggest challenge of their careers. Thunderdome. Wrestling's toughest, the steel cage is home, but there's never one like the Thunderdome. There's no way in and no way out. No, that's not it either. Um, well, anyway, in this press release from Monday, WWE announces that at the Amway Center, they will have a state-of-the-art set that's going to have video boards, pyrotechnics, lasers, cutting-edge graphics, and drone cameras of viewing experience at an unprecedented level starting this Friday on Fox just a couple hours from when I'm recording this right now. And there are quotes from Executive Vice President of Television Production, Kevin Dunn, who says, WWE has a long history of producing the greatest live spectacles in sports and entertainment, yet nothing compares to what we are creating with WWE Thunderdome. This structure will enable us to deliver an immersive atmosphere and generate more excitement amongst the millions of fans watching our programming around the world. So let's pause for a moment and think about what the motivations are here behind WWE doing the Thunderdome approach to the Raw and SmackDown and pay-per-view content here. As I've pointed out here in recent episodes on WrestleNomics, WWE uh, is apparently having some ratings problems. They were more or less grilled about those ratings problems on the Q2 conference call that happened on July 30th. It was pointed out, and it's true that NXT and AEW have bounced back better than Raw and SmackDown have from the initial slump in ratings that coincided with the timing of COVID restrictions. Uh, I've tweeted some graphs on the WrestleNomics Twitter account that I think point out the phenomenon pretty well. If you take the uh, the average of each month for all four major wrestling programs, and if you just look at the growth and sort of start everybody at zero, in January, uh, everybody's rolling along and then really takes a slump together in March and April and even into May. But then in June and July and now into August, what you see is NXT and AEW are bouncing back. Raw and SmackDown are not. And Vince on previous earnings calls has been questioned about engagement metrics or what I sometimes call consumer metrics, which in a non-COVID era included uh, attendance but has also included W Network subscriptions, which declined year over year throughout 2019. They did do a little bit better in Q2, the Q2 that just passed. But merchandise sales throughout the last couple of years had been down, as well as television viewership. And I think we're sort of in an era where reading television viewership is really ambiguous because of all the external effects on television viewership generally. Nonetheless, there's been criticisms and questions about the television viewership right alongside all the other metrics. And Vince throughout the last couple of years has said that it's due to talent injuries or it's due to wanting to get over new stars, having to invest in them and waiting for that investment to to pay off, to get everybody over, or he's sort of put on a happy face and and promised and, and hoped that the new executive directors, Paul Heyman and Eric Bischoff, now both fired, uh, Bruce Pritchard, Now, in both of their places, there's been promises that that would help the situation. And yet here we are in 2020. And on the most recent call, in response to the 
declining ratings and having the comparison of NXT and AEW alongside of Raw and SmackDown to say that, look, two of these are bouncing back, two of these are not. Raw and SmackDown are not bouncing back, and Raw and SmackDown, by the way, are far more valuable properties than Dynamite or NXT at this point. And Vince's answer on the most recent earnings call was that, well, it's because we don't have our fans in attendance. We've had to be at the Performance Center where there's no fans, and the crowd is so important to what we do, which it is. Of course it is. However, that doesn't explain why NXT and AEW have bounced back better than Raw and SmackDown have while dealing with the same lack of fans. Anyway, that's what uh, Vince says the problem is, and the Thunderdome is clearly a way to address that problem in his view. So Kevin Dunn was quoted further that day on Monday uh, in an article with Sports Illustrated. When people think of WWE, most think of the spectacle that we are, but it was just impossible to put on a spectacle in the Performance Center. Moving to Amway and unveiling the Thunderdome, the opportunities are limitless. Dunn goes on, we can do things now production-wise that we could never do otherwise. We're flying drones in the arena. We are putting a roof inside the Amway Center and we'll be able to project content onto the roof. So when a big star like Drew McIntyre comes down to the ring, the whole arena will turn into his content with lasers, pyro, smoke, projections on the top of the building and on the floor. It will be a big, beautiful entrance. Better than WrestleMania. End quote. And, as you may have heard, there are virtual fans that will be in attendance, sort of vir- virtually anyway. You can register at www.thunderdome.com. You might have seen a lot of the screenshots that were going around the other day from apparently the testing that they were doing to get ready. Dunn says, like the NBA, we're doing virtual fans, but we're also creating an arena-type atmosphere. We don't have a flat board. We'll have rows and rows and rows of fans. We'll have almost 1,000 LED boards, and it will recreate the arena experience you're used to seeing with WWE. The atmosphere will be night and day from the Performance Center. This is going to let us have a WrestleMania-level production value, and that's what our audience expects from us. We are also going to put arena audio into the broadcast, similar to baseball, but our audio will be mixed in with the virtual fans. So when fans start chants, we'll hear them. So we'll see what the results look like in a, about an hour or so here. May, and we, I may even be able to uh, put it on and give it a peek while I'm recording here, just to give you an idea of how long it takes me to record this. But, uh, <laughs> but so financially, we know that WWE is paying Orlando and the Amway Center about a half million dollars for two months. So where the real uncertainty is about the cost is in what they're paying to create this Thunderdome. And we know from the press release that the company that's helping them make the Thunderdome is the Famous Group, or TFG, which the the press release says is a full-service fan experience company located in Culver City, California. I think that's uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, For more than 20 years, TFG has helped the biggest brands, venues, and events in the world connect with fans both physically and virtually through creating immersive fan experiences utilizing award-winning creative, rock-solid production, and proprietary technology. TFG has delivered on the biggest stages for Fortune 500 companies, professional sports teams and leagues, esports concerts, festivals, and retail environments. 
The company has serviced 15 Super Bowls and clients like Nike, Live Nation, NBA, NHL, NCAA uh, Final Four, Ubisoft, Pepsi, AT&T, and more than 90 professional sports teams and venues. And for what it's worth, it was notable too that uh, I searched the the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's uh, online search system for Thunderdome and found did not find a active trademark for Thunderdome or any variation with the space without the space that uh, was belonging to either the famous group or World Wrestling Entertainment. If you go to the famous group's website, thefamousgroup.com, you get some information about their company. They have a disciplines page. According to the website, their disciplines are mixed reality and augmented reality, strategy and consulting, creative content and production, experiential activations, social media marketing and strategy, and proprietary technology. So the question is, what is it going to cost WWE to operate the Thunderdome? And what are they paying the famous group to do all this? I guess logistically, it will be similar to running at the Performance Center in that once you set it up, you largely keep everything where it is and there isn't the expense of setup and teardown. Yet on the other hand, Mayor Dyer does mention that you know, in, in part of trying to spin this as something good for the city, that the staff at the Amway Center will be put to work during the pandemic. And if that's the case, then that raises the question about whether or not the, that uh, set of staff will be tested for COVID in advance of these events. But anyway, I, I would think in a non-coronavirus time, an average Raw or SmackDown would probably cost WWE several hundred thousand dollars to run a pay-per-view maybe a million. And I just don't have a great sense, especially at this point sitting here, have not seen it like a full show of the Thunderdome. I could see the production cost being less similar or more, certainly not a lot more, but I could see W justifying a higher cost, even considering all the money that they saved in production costs uh, since the middle of March. So really in terms of thinking about how profitable W is going to be and considering that W is not giving guidance to investors about what it expects for profit. You know, so in other words, W has not, because of COVID, they've justified not uh, giving an estimate about this is how much profit we expect to make in the year. They ha- haven't done that since they rescinded their guidance, uh, well, their Q1 guidance way back uh, in the middle of March. So thinking about that, it's not as if WWE has a certain profit goal in mind that it wants to still be able to hit for the sake of the stock price, for the sake of keeping that promise to the investors that they're going to make X amount of dollars in net income or in adjusted OIDA, which are two different profit metrics. One of them real, one of them imaginary. But <laughs> So it'll be interesting to try to decode. I think uh, when the Q, we are now in Q3, when the Q3 report comes out toward the end of October, we probably will be able to do some math and get some sense of what the difference in cost is because we'll have one full full quarter in Q2 of Performance Center, Raws, and Smackdowns to compare against you know, a Q3 that's got a month and a half of Performance Center, Raws, and Smackdowns and a month and a half of uh, Thunderdome, Raws, and Smackdowns, and pay-per-views. So I don't have a great sense right now as I sit here, especially having not watched it. If you have an idea or an estimate, let me know. I will at some point put out a, an updated uh, 
Q3 in 2020 WWE uh, financial estimate and try to take take a stab at this. But we will have, a, a, I think, a pretty good idea around the end of October about what the cost of this is. So now for the virtual fans who do sign up and log in, there are rules, damn it. According to WWE.com, there is no profanity, no violence, no inappropriate language, no inappropriate clothing. What would be inappropriate clothing? No nudity, no off-color remarks, off-color, off-color remarks, no third-party branding or political messaging. This is from the FAQ. What should I wear? Your attire must be appropriate and must remain on at all times. We, <laughs> we reserve the right to deny your participation or to immediately terminate your participation if you are not appropriately dressed as determined in our sole discretion. Your attire may not contain any immoral graphics. Immoral. This company cares about morality. Your attire may not contain any immoral graphics, images, or texts. Any political statements, slogans, logos, images, texts, or graphics, or any logos, graphics, or other commercial identification of third parties other than WWE, its athletes, sponsors, or licensees. In other words, don't wear your AEW shirt. Uh, officially licensed WWE clothing is preferred, if available. No uh, RIP Khashoggi signs either, I suppose. So there we go. That's the Thunderdome. We'll see if I can give it a look as time goes on here tonight. In WrestleNomics news, I will be reopening the WrestleNomics Patreon beginning October the 1st. So as longtime listeners will know, we used to have a Patreon uh, from about the middle of 2017 until the end of 2018. At the end of 2018, former co-host Chris Mookiegon Harrington of Being the Elite fame went away to go to work for All Elite Wrestling. But before that, we had been doing two shows weekly, a free one and a Patreon one. But as the launch of AEW approached, we paused the Patreon. Uh, Mookie had his last regular appearance on this podcast, and I sort of mulled over what I was going to do with this podcast for the entirety of 2019. I did all of 12 episodes of WrestleNomics Radio in 2019. I think I wrote only six articles in 2019. Is that correct? And I guess I took a lot of time to wrestle and to travel and train a lot more than I had in maybe previous years. But anyway, since the pandemic, here in the atrocious year of 2020, I have been doing this uh, solo journey into the mind of Brandon Thurston every week since the middle of March. And I've been writing more lately. All the the blogs are on WrestleNomics.com now. I wrote for uh, Voices of Wrestling, in fact, uh, this past week for the first time in, I think, four years. But anyway, I've been a lot more productive here with WrestleNomics. At times, doing this is hard work, but it is... Uh, it feels like it's an important contribution to the wrestling media world to do the kind of research intense work that I'm known for and that Mookie was known for in the wrestling media world. Quite honestly, I think it's something that is much needed in, in the wrestling media world. So the point is I want to make uh, some investments and buy some software and equipment and start paying for more services and more, uh, more of the pacer fees for the legal documents. So nothing is plan to go behind the paywall, at least at this point. I might might end up doing something with that in the future, but certainly at this point, nothing is going behind the paywall. This podcast will continue to be free on whatever feed you listen to it on now. I will still 
post blogs on russellomics.com that are free to read, that have zero ads surrounding them, that you can actually read without having to close a bunch of hazardous and intrusive interstitial pictures of gross thumbnails. But anyway, I'm, I'm committed to doing that, and I'm going to offer people to help out to contribute $5 a month through Patreon if you choose. That will go into effect on October 1st. And we do have a number of people who were patrons of the WrestleNomics Patreon when we paused it. Now, nobody has been charged since way back in November 2018. But if you are a current patron to WrestleNomics, and if you do wish to contribute $5 monthly, then you don't need to do anything. Just let October 1st uh, happen, and you will be charged monthly at the beginning of every month $5. If you are a current patron and you don't wish to, I totally understand, and you can go into your account at patreon.com, and you can delete your pledge as soon as possible, or at least before October 1st. And if by chance you forget to, and you do end up getting charged, or even if a few months go by and you get charged and you didn't mean to contribute, you know, it's no problem. Just send me a message, either through the Patreon, or on Twitter at Brandon Thurston, or email me, Brandon at WrestleNomics.com, and I will refund you, no questions asked. You know, I, I know it's a big responsibility to be in charge of billing people, especially on a recurring basis, and I'm definitely not going to keep any money from anybody who doesn't mean to give it. And if you want to sign up, if you're not a current patron of the WrestleNomics Patreon, you can sign up now. The Patreon is currently set to a per-creation support, but I never create any paid creations on there. But so basically you can sign up now as a per-creation subscriber, and then uh, just before October 1st, I will switch it over to monthly member memberships, and then you'll become a $5 patron. So like, think of this as like a public TV, public radio type of support or contribution. You know, this is going to continue to be a service that's out there that anybody can get access to. You know, I think this is a public service that uh, the wrestling industry and wrestling media is uh, better to have. And I want to make that service even better by investing more in this work that I do. But all of that will allow me to continue to do better research, do better written work, do better podcasts and to deliver to everybody the kinds of stories that really only WrestleNomics has gotten out there. Whether that's legal stories like the class action lawsuit related to the, the dealings with Saudi Arabia and the Middle East-North Africa TV deal that I don't know if anybody else would have covered or discovered, or whether it's WWE's annual shareholders meeting, which nobody did cover until I did, or just whether it's being uh, continuing to be the source that everybody relies on to explain to them what this SEC document means, and just how to digest all the news that comes out every quarter in WWE's public reporting. But all that stuff can just be the beginning of it as I continue to do work here, and uh, having your financial support will go a long way. In other news, All Elite Wrestling has announced that it will allow limited ticketed crowds in the 10-15% to 15 capacity to attend Daly's Place in Jacksonville, Florida, where they are taping all of their in-ring content. That beginning on Thursday, next week, August 27th. The press release notes a number of safety protocols that uh, the company will be taking. Uh, it's notable that Daly's Place is an outdoor venue, and that seating is going to be sold in pods for groups of 2, 3, 4, and 6. And fans are going to be required to wear face coverings. Uh, this, by the way, was announced yesterday, Thursday, 
Uh, Tony Khan noted on Twitter today that there are some ticket resellers who have bought the outdoor seat pods that are meant to be sold uh, to groups of people who know each other. And according to Tony Khan, the resellers are trying to split them, thereby selling the tickets to unacquainted fans. Uh, Khan refers to this as illegal and unethical, and that he will cancel uh, any split pods to ensure fans can enjoy the show while keeping safe distance. And remember, this is happening in the state of Florida, in Duval County in Florida. Uh, but in the state of Florida, uh, the cases uh, of COVID and deaths uh, related to COVID uh, remain high on a per capita basis relative to the United States in general. Although they are on the decline in Florida, uh, both cases and deaths and the percent of positive test results, the Florida COVID dashboard lists the target range for positive results at below 10%. They're trying to keep the positive test results under 10%. And in Duval County and in Orange County, which is where Orlando and WWE are, uh, the positive percentage of results has been below 10% for four weeks running, uh, gradually declining to where uh, the week beginning August 9th, Duval County's rate was at 6%. And if we can pull up the orange county rate here on the dashboard, it is at 7% in Orange County, again, which is where Orlando and WWE are. So deaths, cases, uh, what they call on the dashboard, emergency department visits with influenza-like illness or with COVID-like illness, those are all trending downward. However, let's think about where Japan was when New Japan decided to uh, bring fans back in the building, uh, which happened in mid-July. You know, in early and mid-July, the per capita rates, so we're talking about you know, cases per million in Japan, were two to three daily. Uh, deaths, almost zero. You know, compare that to Florida. Their death rate per capita, which is, let's say per million, is several times that of what Japan's death rate was when New Japan started decided to bring fans back to events. Uh, the case rate per million people is hundreds of times uh, in Florida that of what it was in Japan when they started to, when they decided to return fans to events, uh, also at limited capacity for New Japan. So maybe the case rate is affected by the rate of testing, the discrepancy of, test, of testing in the U.S. or in Florida relative to that of what's happening or what was happening or at least was happening in Japan at the time that they made the decision to go back to events with fans so if deaths are a more fair comparison, which they probably are, you've still got a death rate in Florida that's several times that of what it was in Japan and still is. So I should look back in about a week because it, it takes some time for the death data to roll in for whatever reason. But we'll be able to better look in, in about a week to say, here's what the per capita death rate was in Japan when New Japan announced that they were going to put fans back in venues. And then here is what it was when AEW decided they were going to put fans back in venues. I'm sure it'll be multiple times higher in Florida, in Duval. But it'll be interesting to see what the actual comparison is. Now, to be fair, AEW is doing a 10% capacity or 15% capacity. They say 10 to 15%. They are in an outdoor venue, uh, Osaka-Jo Hall, which is where New Japan did its first event with fans back in attendance. Not an outdoor event venue, an indoor event. 
So if you want to make a case for AEW, there is that, that at least they are doing it uh, outdoors, which is supposed to be safer. But clearly in, the, in these two countries, the US and Japan, two different approaches to the coronavirus and certainly two different results. One where we've got Japan, a, a country of about 126 million people, and you've got about 1,200 deaths. Now, in the United States, much larger population than Japan, about 330 million people here. So more than twice the population of Japan, but less than three times the population of Japan. But yet in the United States, we've got 170,000 people dead of the coronavirus. 174,000 as of yesterday. That's about 145 times the death of Japan. Less than three times the population. 145 times the death. And I'm not talking about cases or testing. I'm talking about death. And it's got nothing to do with the lethality of COVID to the people who are infected. You know, a lot of people who have COVID are asymptomatic. Maybe there's a lot of people, a lot more than we know, who have been infected. And maybe the people who are infected who die, maybe that percentage is very small. Could be. That doesn't change the fact the United States has got two and a half times the population of Japan, 145 times the amount of COVID deaths. And then from there, it's time for a new segment here on WrestleNomics called This Week in Wrestling Fan Resentment. Because of the wrestling business, the customer is always wrong. Here on the Wrestling Fan Resentment portion of the show, we'll seek out advice from noted wrestling philosophers who know all too well from their irreplaceable first-hand experience that the problem at the center of today's industry are those annoying wrestling fans. Those customers who just keep ruining the business for wrestlers and executives alike with their sheer fickle unpredictability. This week in an interview with Sporting News, WWE superstar Seth Rollins, just a few weeks removed from his insight that today's wrestling fans just don't have the patience for long-term storytelling he said this week, quote, I don't know what the fans want. You give them what they want, and they reject it. Then you give them what they want again, and after two weeks, they want what they rejected. It's such a weird roller coaster. Wrestling fandom is one of the wildest things in the world. We have to do things week to week because we really don't have things planned and done for weeks, like a TV show. Everything changes week to week. I can't imagine being somebody who has to write a wrestling show. You have to lose your hair. I can just do my job the best I can. That's been this week in Wrestling Fan Resentment.
In other news, the Japanese women's promotion, Stardom, which is a subsidiary of Bushiroad, which is the same company that is the parent company to New Japan Pro Wrestling. Stardom announced today, Friday, that it will be canceling the four events that it had scheduled through the remainder of August. After administering COVID testing this week, two positive cases were found among members of the Stardom roster. Stardom had already canceled its August 15th event after a member of its roster had a fever. The promotion hopes to resume its events in September, provided that there are no new confirmed cases. Stardom did not name who had tested positive for the coronavirus. NXT this week ran unopposed by AEW Dynamite, the only other time that has happened so far in this Wednesday night head-to-head competition was Christmas, not exactly the best night for drawing viewership. AW Dynamite was preempted due to NBA playoff games on TNT. In the trailing four weeks, NXT had averaged just under 700,000 viewers. This Wednesday night, unopposed, NXT was viewed by 853,000 viewers. That according to reports from showbuzzdaily.com. Now in the key demo... And by the way, Paul Levesque was asked on the NXT conference call this week, what does he focus on more, total viewership or the key demo? Paul Levesque's answer, he focuses on NXT. These, these are all real quotes. We, we deal with nothing but the facts here at WrestleNomics. But in the key demo, trailing four weeks, of course, all four weeks being opposed by AEW, trailing four weeks, NXT had been averaging a .18 on this night, unopposed, a .24. How does that compare to AEW, uh, what AEW had been doing in recent weeks? So basically what NXT did unopposed, uh, basically it did slightly better viewership than AEW does in total audience. But even unopposed, NXT did not equal what AEW Dynamite has been doing in the key demo for the last four weeks. Uh, Dynamite last four weeks, its worst demo rating was .30. Again, NXT here doing 0.24. So NXT's uh, gain from what it usually does, its gain while it was unopposed, was a bit more than the number of viewers who uh, flip back and forth between NXT and AEW uh, during commercials. You know, the details that I know about the patterns within the minute-to-minute viewership, uh, we know that about 150 to 200,000 viewers flip during the commercials. Which is, by the way, why I'm kind of reluctant to get into a big study of quarter hours and trying to figure out who's a draw based on the quarter hours. Because it's hard to account for commercials with only quarter hour breakdowns. And by the way, if I could rant for a moment on the who's a draw conversation, uh, I I, I guess I, I generally... Now, certainly there are people in wrestling history who absolutely were draws, right? Hulk Hogan was a draw. Steve Austin was a draw. The Rock was a draw. Bill Goldberg was a draw. Jim Londos was a draw. Bruno Sammartino was a draw. But there's a few things happening now that make that question difficult. Um, just for one thing, there are far fewer peak stars who, who emerge, who are emerging above the rest. And that's something we talk about often. I think we'll talk about, about that, uh, the, the problem with star creation, particularly with WWE in a moment. When we talk about uh, some things that Triple H said this week and whether you want to debate about whether that's intentional to some degree or not, uh, the brand is the draw and all that. 
But uh, what what troubles me is that when the question is asked online, I think it's kind of asked in a bad faith way. I am suspicious of the motivations of the the reason to ask the question uh, when I see it in the Twitter notifications and so forth. I, just that I think it's usually a question that is asked because somebody is having an argument with somebody else. You know, person A is a fan of of such and such wrestler. Person B is an anti fan of such and such wrestler, and you know, these parties are looking for confirmation of their bias. Or somebody's just trying to insult somebody else's taste. Or they've conflated an argument about taste into an argument about economics. Anyway, I think the, the who's a draw questions are often not asked from a place that wants to genuinely, genuinely learn something about the wrestling business or about its metrics or even about star power, but wants to insult someone's taste or argument. But anyway, even addressing such questions, we, we lack a lot of the, the really good data that we would need to answer those questions. Because a lot of the data that we have, at least in WWE's case, and in the case of AEW, we have even less data, although we do have quarter-hour data for an AEW and NXT, which we do not have for main roster stuff. But anyway, we don't have any records related to merchandise sales. Looking at ticket sales is complicated by seasonality in terms of where on the calendar the event happens. Uh, it's complicated by market size. Uh, I think the best way to try to look at whether or not somebody is, is a house show draw or ticket sales draw is to look at the house shows, which we may not even have any of anymore. But I, I did a study where I looked at John Cena's uh, house shows in various markets and then compared those uh, attendances to the to attendances in the same city but the attendances of shows that did not have John Cena on them. And I, so I call that a market-to-market comparison. And really then on top of that, you'd want to funnel that through seasonality. So shows in Q4 and Q1 often perform better than shows in Q2 or Q3. And like, unfortunately, the sort of the best individualized series of data we have to look at are, are Google searches which, of course, don't necessarily mean anything in the way of drawing money. Nobody makes any money when you type John Cena's name to Google, except for maybe Google. But Google at least does tell us something about particular individuals and how often people are searching for uh, strings that are related to what it considers to be a, a topic, such as a person who wrestles for WWE. And I tend to believe that how often a person is being searched for is reflective of how often a person is being thought about. It's sort of a mind share metric, generally, which is skewed by things like debuts and deaths, certainly, and other unfavorable news events. But I think it's a, a good indicator of mind share, and I think mind share is a good indicator of someone's economic value. Not perfect, but it's the best that we've got in terms of really individualized data. Of course, in the case of the companies, WB and AEW, they know who's selling what merch in what quantities. And even that can be somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you have you know, 10 merch items for a given star and one merch item for somebody else, and that sort of is by nature a decision that you have to make, then it is much more likely that the person with 10 items is going to sell more merch than the person with one item. So... Point is, all this stuff is complicated. Uh, I don't really know who's a draw. I think Google Web Search is a good piece of information to look at 
it's not a definite answer. And I think it's good to be looking at larger periods of time rather than smaller periods of time. You want to look at years instead of weeks. If you want to get a sense of how much of a economic value somebody is to an event or a company. But anyway, in other news in Japan, we have found that there are some records for all Japan pro wrestling's finances and pro wrestling Noah out there on this car.jp website. I'm not sure what the reasons are why this is published, uh, but it's out there. It's basically a brief financial statement for all Japan pro wrestling and for Noah. We've got records for all Japan going back three fiscal years, just one fiscal year for pro wrestling Noah. And basically the story is neither of these companies are profitable. So all Japan pro wrestling, its fiscal year ends on March 31st of each year. So for the fiscal year that ended in March 2018, they lost over 800,000 yen. That comes out to about $8,000 US. For the next year, year ending March 2019, all Japan Pro Wrestling lost over 400,000 yen, comes out to about $4,000 US at a loss. So these are not huge losses in profit, but, but not profitable. And then this year, the fiscal year ending March 2020, just a few months ago, All Japan running at a much larger loss than the two previous years, more than 9 million yen uh, in negative net income. That's what we're talking about here, net income, that 9 million in negative net income comes out to about $85,000 U.S. So basically, in the fiscal year 2018, a small loss of profit. The fiscal year of 2019, a small loss of profit. And then in the fiscal year 2020, the one that just ended a much larger uh, loss of $85,000. But Pro Wrestling Noah is losing about 10 times as much money as All Japan. All Japan, or Noah's net income, 95 million yen coming out to just under $900,000 in loss. So pro wrestling Noah, much less profitable than all Japan pro wrestling. I should do a a graph to uh, illustrate this better. Now I had done one recently and not realizing that in Japanese, the triangle uh, character indicates a negative. So there was an incorrect graph floating on the WrestleNomics Twitter account until I was gratefully corrected. Although apparently not in time for The Observer to pick this up. So if you've read The Observer this week and you've seen that uh, that Dave has reported that All Japan has a small profit, uh, he didn't report the Noah figure as far as I know. But uh, hopefully he'll be correcting that soon. But anyway, to put this, put this in some context, again, about $700,000 or $900,000 in loss for Noah, $85,000 in loss for All Japan in their most recent completed fiscal years. Uh, Compare that to New Japan, which is reporting a profit of about $5 million in in, uh, each of the last two years. And in fact, when I say each of the last two years, I really mean uh, the fiscal year ending July 2018 and the fiscal year ending July 2019. So we should be getting a new Bushi Road financial report uh, probably pretty soon, since we're almost a month away from the end of their fiscal year. And unfortunately for granularity, uh, last year and probably this year, we didn't get New Japan broken out in terms of the, the net income or the profitability. But what we did get is all of Bushiroad's sports business, uh, reported last year to be making $5.7 million. And I would think New Japan is making up, uh, 
the vast majority of that, maybe along with kickboxing. I don't think they had acquired stardom uh, by July 2019 yet. But this year, uh, stardom would be included in that. Of course, compare this to WWE making uh, $77 million in net income last year compared to you know, New Japan's roughly $5 million. So WWE, by far, uh, multiples uh, more profitable than New Japan. And uh, since we're talking about All Japan and NOAA here, All Japan and NOAA, not uh, the number two or number three companies in Japan. Perceptibly, that would be Dragon Gate and DDT. And I don't know uh, really any financial information about those companies, but if anybody does, please pass it along. So that's about what I have for this week. And while I don't know whether or not Orange Cassidy is a draw... Although, according to The Observer, the minute-by-minute viewership data shows that the Jericho versus Orange Cassidy uh, match from last week did grow uh, as the match went on. And while I don't know whether or not he's a draw, you can read about why he's popular uh, on VoicesOfWrestling.com this week in some rare non-economic thought, which includes sentences like... Orange Cassidy is an apparently comedic character, but the dramatic catharsis for the audience, who knows a wrestling culture and lives in a wider society with such tension between capability and futility, the dramatic catharsis is in the hope that Cassidy can be victorious while maintaining his utterly unemotional attitude. He can, unlike us, emotionally invest nothing but accomplish something. That is, in our time, the unrealistic fantasy realized. You can find that at VoicesOfWrestling.com and you can read all of my other recent written work at WrestleNomics.com Sign up now for the Patreon that will not charge you until October 1st at Patreon.com slash WrestleNomics You can follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics You can follow me at Brandon Thurston. And I'm Brandon Thurston. And I'll talk to you next time.